Welcome to the Hands Up, Don't Shoot podcast, where I, your host, Ashley France Howell, tell the stories of Black victims of police brutality. Welcome to Episode 7. Today, I am going to tell you the stories of Amadou Diallo and Corinne Gaines. Amadou Diallo was born on September 2nd, 1976 in Sino County in Liberia, which is a West African coastal country. His parents, Saiku Diallo and Kadiatu Diallo, were from the Republic of Guinea, which is also a coastal country in West Africa. He was the oldest sibling of his two brothers and sister, Ibrahim, Abdul, and Boratu Diallo, respectively. Amadou loved reading and had a strong desire to go to college, and he wanted the same for his siblings as well, so he tried to instill some of those college values and and thoughts and dreams in his siblings, too. His favorite sports were soccer and basketball. Amadou was also pretty well-traveled. His parents had a business where they transported gemstones between Africa and Asia, so this gave Amadou the opportunity to study in various countries. He lived in Liberia, Guinea, Togo, and Thailand, and in Thailand is where he attended a French international school. He also traveled to France and a few countries in Asia. So after graduating from the French international school, he left Thailand and moved to Singapore where he studied at the informatics computer school. And his travels afforded him the opportunity to learn different languages and different cultures And he ended up being fluent in five languages, Fulani, English, French, Spanish, and Thai. In 1989, when he was about 13 years old, his parents had divorced, and so he went to live in Thailand with his mom. And he soon began to take sort of an interest in American culture, so... After leaving Singapore, he decided that he wanted to attend college in the United States. And in September of 1996, he packed up and moved to the Bronx in New York. But before leaving, he left his mom a note and it said, quote, The solution is USA. Don't leave my brothers and sister here. End quote. When he arrived, his uncle had told him to be careful because he had heard about young men from Guinea who had been losing their lives to shootings in in the streets. But Amadou was confident in how the U.S. handled crime, and he told his uncle that he is safe and he is not worried. And he even shared an apartment with three roommates who were also from Guinea, So he was able to sort of be in a a comfortable environment with people he was familiar with and people that were like him. Amadou wanted to get a computer science degree, so he began working odd jobs to raise money. And he wanted to be independent and do it on his own, so he didn't ask his family for money. It was reported that a few days before his death, 
um, he called his mom to tell her that he had saved enough money to begin paying for college courses. Amadou lived at 1157 Wheeler Avenue, which was located in the Bronx, and he was standing in his building lobby in the early morning hours of February 4th, 1999. There were four plainclothes New York City police officers that were patrolling the neighborhood, and when they got to his building, they got out of their cars. There had been a serial rapist who they believed had lived in the area, and they were either hoping to maybe catch him in the act or find evidence to help lead them to him and hopefully an eventual arrest. Uh, Just a side note, the rapist was caught. His name was Isaac Jones, and he was allegedly responsible for about 51 attacks over a period of six years or so. So the officers were part of what was called the Street Crime Unit, and that was established in 1972. And what it was, was the unit had sent out plainclothes officers to sort of search the streets for criminals. The officers were Sean Carroll, Richard Murphy, Edward McMillan, and Kenneth Boss. It was around 12.40 a.m. when they approached Amadou, and unfortunately we don't know whether or not they identified themselves as police officers, but it was said that they did begin to question him. It was also reported that Amadou didn't respond to them, but instead reached into his back pocket to grab his wallet, which was small and black. Now, okay. So this is speculation on my part, but this is what I think happened. I think there were some words spoken that probably made Amadou realize that he was speaking to police officers, like maybe they asked who he was, and instead of saying anything or speaking back, he just decided to be proactive and show them his ID to prove who he was. Again, this is speculation on my part. We only have the word of the police officers to go off of. So when he pulled his wallet out, one of the officers yelled something about there being a gun, and then that's when all four of the officers started to shoot at Amadou. In total, they fired 41 shots at him, and 19 of them hit Amadou. He was killed instantly. People in the neighborhood did call 911, and the officers involved also called the incident in on their radios, and after other officers showed up, it was discovered that Amadou only had his wallet and pager, which were laying next to him. Amadou was 22 years old. Two months after the shooting, the four officers involved were each charged with second-degree murder, and the trial began on February 2nd, 2000. It was said that there were protesters outside that were shouting, no justice, no peace. And between February 21st and the 22nd, closing arguments were heard, and then the case was handed over to the jury. They deliberated for about three days, and on February 25th, 
2000, all four of the officers were acquitted. After the release of the verdict, the president at the time, President Bill Clinton, said, quote, I don't pretend for a moment to second-guess the jury, but I know that most people in America of all races believe that if it had been a young white man in an all-white neighborhood, it probably wouldn't have happened. In 2002, the street crime unit was restructured and renamed by Police Commissioner Raymond W. Kelly once a deeper investigation uncovered racial profiling. In April 2000, Amadou's family had sued the city of New York and the officers involved for $61 million, and they ended up settling for $3 million. Part of that money was used to establish the Amadou Diallo Foundation and Scholarship Fund in 2005, and his mother wanted to do this because she knew how passionate Amadou was about going to college, and she wanted to give other students of color that opportunity as well. The Amadou Diallo Foundation's About Us page says, quote, The Amadou Diallo Foundation works to promote racial healing and build strong community support in guiding students' pathways to success as they begin to prepare and transition from high school into post-secondary education and pursue career pathways on their way to becoming productive members of their communities. Amadou Diallo scholars will set an example that despite the country they came from or the color of their skin, that they are the future and serve as positive role models for other young people in communities across the country to follow and that they can also pursue careers and make their community stronger as productive members of their community, end quote. In 2003, the block where Amadou lived and died was renamed Amadou Diallo Place in his honor. I want to end Amadou's story with a quote from his mother, and it just sort of tells us how humble he was despite his upbringing. She says, What I want the world to know about Amadou was, when he was one, he grew up in a very wealthy surrounding. When he was growing up as a little boy, we had five people working in the house. A gardener, someone who could cook, a driver, and everything else. Amadou never saw that type of privilege. He would always go and connect with the less fortunate people. Those are the people that Amadou would talk to. And that family was the story of Amadou Diallo. Now I'm going to tell you the story of Corinne Gaines. Corinne Gaines was born on August 24th, 1992 in Baltimore, Maryland to her parents, Ryan Gaines and Rhonda Dormius. She attended Baltimore City Public Schools and then attended Baltimore City College where she graduated in 2010. She also went to Morgan State University for a short time, and after leaving school, Corinne started her career as a cosmetologist and hairstylist in Baltimore. She had two children, a boy named Cody and a younger girl named Carson. It's been reported that 
Corinne may have suffered from some mental health issues, as well as aggressive behavior due to a prolonged exposure to lead paint while she was growing up. Terrence McCoy from the Washington Post said, quote, Advocates and studies say it can diminish cognitive function, increase aggression, and ultimately exacerbate the cycle of poverty that is already exceedingly difficult to break, end quote. Corinne wasn't a fan of police and had pretty strong feelings against them. She would always record her encounters with them, and in one of her encounters, she was driving and got pulled over for improper license plates. She had pieces of cardboard where the plate should have been, and one of them read, Any government official that compromises this pursuit to happiness and right to travel will be criminally responsible and fined, as this is a natural right and freedom. She recorded this incident, and it lasted about 17 minutes before she was forcibly removed from the car by one of the officers. She was charged with resisting arrest and disorderly conduct. She was given a trial date to face those charges, along with the other few other traffic violations, but she never attended court and bench warrants were issued for her arrest. So on August 1st, 2016, officers tried to serve Corinne with the warrants at her Carriage Hill apartment complex, which was located in Randallstown, Maryland. The police were also there to serve an arrest warrant on her boyfriend, Corinne Courtney, who was reportedly wanted on an assault charge. The officers knocked on the door of the apartment, but no one answered, and they claimed to have heard the voices of a man, woman, and children. They waited for about 10 minutes, and after no one answered, they got a key from the landlord and unlocked the door. Because the security chain was on the door, they couldn't get in immediately, and so they ended up kicking the door in to break the security chain. Kareem immediately surrendered to the police and took Carson with them and they left the apartment. And it wasn't really clear on why he didn't take Cody as well. So he took the younger daughter but left the five-year-old there. Through the open door, police saw Corinne arm herself with a shotgun and she refused to leave the apartment. The standoff lasted for about six hours. During that time, they tried negotiating with her, whether it was over the phone or by talking to her through the door, and they even tried bringing her parents over, but she stayed in the apartment and refused to leave. Corinne also recorded some of this incident on Instagram and Facebook Live, but officers had her accounts shut down during the standoff. She even gave her son the phone at times to try to record it as well. So what comes next is from the accounts of the police officers that were there. One of the officers named Alan Griffin III testified that Corinne pointed the gun at him and told him that she would shoot him if he didn't leave. Officer Griffin yelled to his partner that there was a gun and he backed out of the doorway. And so he, along with other officers that were there, began to surround the apartment in different positions. 
So during this time, Karen and her son had moved into the kitchen, and officers called this move to a different location a, quote, tactical advantage. Um, I did read somewhere that they said that Karen moved to the kitchen, but her gun didn't. And so I'm assuming that even though they couldn't see her, they could still see the gun pointing out from maybe a kitchen doorway or so. The police then opened fire. During the exchange of bullets, Karen was able to fire one or two shots. One of the officers named Corporal Royce Ruby Jr. was the first to fire. He then went inside of the apartment and shot Karen three more times, killing her and injuring her five-year-old son, Cody. So from what I understand, he did not shoot directly at Cody, but one of the bullets may have ricocheted off the refrigerator and hit Cody in the cheek and in his elbow, which for both he had to get reconstructive surgery. Corinne was 23 years old. A month later, Corinne's family filed a civil lawsuit against the officers, but they weren't charged. In February 2018, an all-female jury awarded five-year-old Cody about $33 million, Carson was awarded about $4.5 million, and Corinne's mother and father were awarded $300,000 each, along with the estate of Corinne Gaines. The next year, in February 2019, a Baltimore County judge overturned the jury decision. His name was Judge Mickey Norman, and he wrote that, quote, Officer Ruby's actions were objectively reasonable and did not violate Gaines's Fourth Amendment right against unlawful seizure, end quote. The family then appealed to overturn the judge's decision, and Almost a year and a half later, in July of 2020, the state appeals court ruled that Judge Norman was wrong to overturn the verdict, and the settlement money was then reinstated to Corinne's family. And this was the largest ever settlement against a Baltimore area police force. And that family was the story of Corinne Gaines. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, you can find me on Facebook by searching for the Hands Up Don't Shoot podcast group on Instagram at HudsPod. You can send me an email at HudsPod at gmail.com. And you can check out my website at www.hudspod.com. Remember, HudsPod is spelled H-U-D-S-P-O-D. Don't forget to subscribe to make sure you get the latest episodes. And if you don't mind, leave me a five-star review. Stay safe and I'll see you next week.